as we do continue to prepare our hearts to commune together at the Lord's table this morning, it's crucial that we think clearly about this observance. We may approach this table with distorted concepts that cloud the true meaning of Jesus' death and thus compromise the joy that we should find in it as believers. So this, I think, is an ideal time to solidify and to clarify our perception of what Jesus was actually doing for believers when He died on a cross outside of Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. Have you ever viewed yourself in one of those mirrors found at an amusement park or carnival or, or fair or something? It's glasses twisted, and so the image that comes from it is distorted, and it makes you laugh because you see your image, but you don't see your image. You look so strange there. It distorts reality. You know that for centuries and to our day, many have proposed distorted views of the meaning of Christ's death. And this is no laughing matter. These distorted views do indeed bear something of the image of Christ crucified and risen and the distinct meaning of it. But they're distorted images. And when the reality of Jesus' death is distorted by falsehood, the joy and glory of His saving grace is distorted, and our salvation is jeopardized by these falsehoods. I'd like us to consider today several of these distortions. They in some way reflect the truth, but in another sense are truly distorted. And I do so for three reasons, if you could follow with me. The first is to build a context in which we might more clearly consider the truth about Christ's death as we come before this table. That we would just clear our minds to see it as it is. The second reason I present these falsehoods is to clear away any vestiges of these distortions that linger in our own hearts. When we hear false doctrine, very often we hear the echo of our own temptations of things that we indeed have thought. And that's where false doctrine comes from, from the mind of man, from sinful concepts. And it works itself out into systems eventually and models. And maybe you bring to this table today some of those distortions that are fogging your own mind and limiting your understanding of this work of Christ. Third reason that I bring these distortions is to help equip us against doctrinal attacks that are being leveled against the biblical vision of Christ's death in our day. Particularly those of the younger generation are under a severe assault when it comes to what the atonement of Christ means. And so we want to equip ourselves as teachers in the older generation and as those who are coming up behind, that they would conceive and understand what Jesus' death truly is. So with that in view, let us consider first three distinctive views of Jesus' death. And I might add here too that as we share these ideas, false doctrine has always done the church well. False doctrine has certainly done the church badly in many ways through the centuries, but it's also helped us to clarify the truth that we find in God's Word. And that's what we want to do a bit here this morning. The first deficient view of Jesus' death is that Jesus died to rescue His people from bondage to Satan, to deliver them from the demonic realm. 
And this, of course, is a glorious truth as far as it goes. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Colossians 2, verse 15, Jesus' death disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. This is a glorious truth of what Jesus' death accomplished. Jesus indeed died to ransom his people from the stranglehold of demonic forces and to free us to live lives of righteousness. But what is subtly, and sometimes not so subtly, assumed by proponents of these views, and this view in particular, is that all we need to do is to be delivered from sin. If Satan's influence is removed, then we will be okay. We will be delivered from that which corrupts us, and we will be able to walk on the path of righteousness. Now, this view purposefully steers clear of any notion that Jesus' death has anything to do with God's wrath against sin. It is merely delivering us from the powers of darkness that hold us. And I think proves severely deficient in light of Scripture because it doesn't address who we are effectively enough, nor what Christ has done. The second deficient view is that Jesus died to provide his people with an inspiring moral example to follow. In the 12th century, Peter Abelard argued that Jesus died simply to show us how much God loves us. And that this knowledge was sufficient to inspire sinners to walk the path of salvation. If we could just see how much he loved us. Well... Jesus came to finally demonstrate this for time and eternity. This is how much I loved you. And that is all. That is what the death of Christ did. Abelard's theory was improved by Faustus Socinus in the 16th century, a popular Italian theologian living in Poland, who said Jesus' death was intended to teach us how to live. Not only an inspiration by his love, but an example that we are to follow. And again, there is a vision here of the truth, isn't there? There's some aspect of the true image. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. But we ask, is this all Jesus' death was meant to do, simply to inspire us to follow him? So Sinus went so far as to argue that the only requirement forgiveness of sin was repentance. Jesus' death was an example to follow. So if we simply repent and follow him, we're saved. And that's all that Christ's death intended to do, was to initiate repentance that led to following Christ as an example. The fact that Jesus died to pay the penalty of sin is a notion Socinus found reprehensible and denied, and many follow him to this day. The third false view is that Jesus died so that God could identify with human suffering. Again, we see the truth in this. And let me assure you, if you go to a popular Christian bookstore today, you will find a book that pretty much argues this point. There are books being written, it's a fairly popular line right now, that Christ's death did not so much address a problem with us, 
far more fundamentally it addressed something that was lacking in God. Not in a morally deficient way, but it was this. God simply could not understand our suffering. As a perfect and holy God who was untouched by sin and the curse, He didn't understand it. He had not experienced it. But now that God understands human suffering, which He could not until the incarnation of Jesus, God is a source of saving compassion. And we see some glimmers of the truth here. For Hebrews 4, 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There seems to indeed be some connection here between Jesus enduring our suffering and our responding to that by gaining His compassion. But I ask again, did Jesus' death simply fit Him to be sympathetic toward us? Is that salvation? Driving this view for some is the conviction that we must reject the appalling vision of a vindictive God who would crucify sinners or their substitute to fulfill His love for them. What kind of a God is that? Jesus dying in the place of sinners is violence. And violence is always evil, these proponents say. I don't know if they don't read the Bible in the Old Testament, don't understand the Old Testament, simply dismiss it. I don't know how they say this, but all violence is always wrong. And so God can have nothing to do with wrong. He could have nothing to do with the death of Jesus. It's unconscionable, they say, to propose that the wrath of a fierce and angry father is placated by his loving and gracious son who gets the father to settle down and love sinners he didn't love before. By the way, on that point, I say amen, but this is how they present it. This gracious son coming in to this judgmental father and changing his mind. Who wants to believe this kind of truth, they say? They go even further and drive the wedge of the knife in a bit further when they say, we read of, for instance, the king of Moab who in 2 Kings chapter 3 sacrifices his son as a burnt offering to try to appease the anger of the gods, to try to make them propitious and to help him in the battle. And you're saying that that's exactly how your God operates. He kills his son so that things will go his way. Who wants to worship a God like that? We'll address this in a different way, Lord willing, in a few moments. Let me just say here, as we gather around this table as a community, I really doubt that anyone entered this building today thinking such things. But maybe you bring aspects of these theories to this table this morning. And here's where I think it's wise for us to chase off the false notions and the tempting thoughts that indeed are suggested by a demonic world. Is your view of Jesus' atoning death distorted by the uncomfortable notion of a son appeasing an angry father, placating his wrath? Are you troubled by the parallel between Jesus' sacrifice and the placating of the gods in pagan ritual? Does your view of Jesus' death gravitate to his moral example and his victory over death? And if you stop to think about it, really, 
you tend to inch away from the sense that Jesus died because of your sin as a sacrifice. Let us use these distorted images of Jesus' death as a context in which to establish a clearer picture of the meaning and the accomplishment of the death of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you with my own thoughts as we bring them together around this table to think clearly, what does Jesus' death mean? Your life depends on it. Your eternal soul depends on it. Certainly, this gathering depends on it and the meaning of this communion. But beyond that, your eternal soul hinges on what you believe about the death of Jesus Christ. Let us say, in light of Scripture, and we will not take a lot of time to work through these biblically, but we will mention numerous passages and could develop these ideas, each one as an entire series. But just as an overview to prepare our hearts, let's say, first of all, that Jesus' death was sacrificial atonement for sin. Jesus died as a sacrifice to pay the penalty of sin. Hebrews 9 and verse 26 says this. We question this. Is this true? Was Jesus truly a sacrifice? Dying for sin. Hebrews 9.26 says this. Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. John the Baptist, we, we remember, called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we have some sense of what that means just from our knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures. But think of it in the context of the day. When this is spoken of Jesus, there are sacrifices being offered in Jerusalem at the temple. Let's remember the imagery of this sacrificial system with the familiar Leviticus chapter 1. As God begins to prepare the Israelites for this ritual sacrifice, Leviticus chapter 1 lays out the plan for the priesthood and how the sins of the people of Israel are to be dealt with. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So in the context of a sacrificial animal being offered, there is a reference here to atonement. That is to the covering or the forgiveness in one sense of the word of sins. An animal dying, hands placed on its head to identify the sin with this sacrifice. Now we go to Leviticus 16 and the quintessential example of this atonement process in the ritual instructions to Israel. Leviticus chapter 16 deals with a day of atonement. So atonement will be taking place routinely, but there will be a day of atonement for the people of Israel to observe what God has provided for their forgiveness. Verse 15 of chapter 16, 
Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, according to previous discussion, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do for the tent of meeting, and so he shall do, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. That's not difficult to see what's being described here. Israel is a nation of sinners. There are transgressions, there are sins, there are weaknesses that they display. And so there is going to be here, among other things, and we're summarizing, one goat that is killed to make atonement for sin. This goat is slaughtered in behalf of the people because they are sinners. Now a second goat is taken in this ritual to, as J.I. Packer observes, illustrate what in terms of the type was accomplished by the death of the first goat. And I think this is very helpful. Why these two goats? One's killed, something else is done with the other. The second one and the first one are really two sides of one coin. The second one demonstrating what is true about the first one. Verse 20 of chapter 16. Verse 20 of Leviticus 16. And when he had made an end, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat. What's he putting on the head of the goat? All of the Israelites? No, he's putting on the head of the goat all of the sins of the Israelites. In a mysterious way that we can't fully understand, but in some representative way, he's to put his hand on the head of this goat and to send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities. So one goat sacrificed, killed for the sinful nation, and one goat with the sins on it, in a sense, sent away and driven off from the people into the wilderness. Now let's come back to it. When John the Baptist said, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It wasn't hard to know what he was saying. Now, people that heard it didn't fully understand how this would be worked out and what it could possibly mean that here is a man who is the Lamb of God. But as we look back upon it from what we know Jesus has done, and as we look at it pointedly from John's statement, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The imagery of Old Testament sacrifice is unmistakable. John is purposefully pointing back to this sacrificial system and saying there was a goat, hands on its head, sent off with sin. There was a goat, sacrificed to pay the penalty of sin. This one, Jesus Christ, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John's Gospel labors then from that point to demonstrate that Jesus is this sacrificial Lamb. He is the Passover Lamb who lays down His life for His people. 
Let's turn to Hebrews 13 and verse 11, where the author of Hebrews sees this clearly. Hebrews chapter 13. We could demonstrate this from the writings of the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul. Let us look just at one succinct statement of it in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm sorry, 13, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 For the bodies of those animals, speaking back of the old covenant system, whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The linkage between Jesus as sacrifice in the Old Testament system is unmistakable. He died as a sacrificial atonement for sinners. The parallel cannot be missed. The biblical record is clear. Jesus died as an innocent, sacrificial lamb whose death atoned for the guilt of sinners, providing forgiveness. Secondly, Jesus' death was propitiation of God's wrath against sinners. I think we need to bring this as well to the table in our understanding. Not only sacrifice to provide for forgiveness, but sacrifice that satiates or propitiates the anger of God. This isn't a new term to us as a church. It's a dirty term to many in our day, even those who sometimes claim to be uh, Christians. By dying as a sacrifice for our sins, Jesus satisfied God's wrath against sinners. That's the idea of propitiation. To appease, to satisfy, to placate God's anger against sin. As I said, many criticize this idea. The notion that God would vent His anger on His Son has been referred to in several contexts of late, in recent books, as divine child abuse. That's a quote. Just judges do not, indeed they cannot, punish their sons for the sins committed by someone else. That's abusing one's child. It's wrong. The very notion that God cannot just choose to forgive sins without a payment has even been ridiculed, has has been ridiculed since Hugo Grotius in the 17th century. In other words, God's big enough to just forgive sins. He doesn't have to require a punishment, does he? Can't he just say, it's all right, I've chosen as the great God to forgive you of your sin? Why can't God do that? Isn't your God that big? Mine is, they say. It's also argued that the notion of appeasing God's wrath is pagan and wicked. Paganism was a system of placating capricious gods who are known for their ill temper. A helpful section And I found many years ago in J.I. Packer's Knowing God is is so well said as he describes the pagan mindset. I've never seen anything more succinctly describe the system. Listen to what he says. Here's paganism. The only course is to humor and mollify the gods by an offering. The rule with offerings is the bigger the better. For the gods are inclined to hold out for something sizable. In this they are cruel and heartless, but they have the advantage. So what can you really do? The wise person person bows to the inevitable and makes sure to offer something impressive enough to produce the desired result. Human sacrifice in particular is expensive but effective. 
Thus, pagan religion appears as a callous commercialism, a matter of managing and manipulating your gods by cunning bribery. And within paganism, propitiation, the appeasing of celestial bad tempers, takes its place as a regular part of life, one of the many irksome necessities that one cannot get on without. Now there it is in a nutshell. And that, says the critics of propitiation, is precisely the kind of God you want to put forward. One that you've got to appease and satisfy because he's so mad at everything. And one, indeed, that sacrifices his own son. Isn't it true that the picture of God is radically against this view? He's not a God of bad temper. There's no capricious cruelty and heartless unconcern with God. And so we might expect, as Packer goes on to note, that if that's the case, you would certainly expect that the biblical authors would say, and there's no more of this sacrifice stuff. No more children sacrifice for sin. The New Testament says something very different. And we've got to labor here and think clearly, because here is one point of significant attack in our day. We have to think clearly on this. Listen to the text of Scripture. Hebrews 2.17, we learn that Jesus is a, quote, faithful high priest in the service of God who makes propitiation for the sins of His people. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. And notice there what the Apostle says. 1 John 2 and verse 2, Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins. By the way, if you have a translation that does not read propitiation, you might want to get another translation. In fact, we've used the translation here for many years that doesn't use the word propitiation. You just need to understand that there's a debate as to the meaning of the word. And there are many translations that will use a phrase such as the NIV with atoning sacrifice, which is appropriate, but may not go deeply enough. Indeed, I would argue does not go deeply enough. And there are people who have put in much effort to show that this word means something more than simply forgiving sin. More than just sacrifice, but actually appeasing the anger of God. Now we can't get around this. Chapter 4, verse 10, we notice it again. Chapter 4 and verse 10. And I don't think that we should want to get around it, by the way. But chapter 4 and verse 10 says, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the Bible is going with this concept of appeasing an angry God without apology. And is saying that indeed Jesus does satisfy God's anger against sin. But we find right here in 1 John 4.10 the difference with paganism. In paganism, the gods stand back and say, go ahead, try to figure out what makes me happy. I'll smash all of you that don't get it, and I'll be happy for those of you who do get the picture, but you go ahead and try to figure out what will make me happy. I'm mad at you. I don't have any reason to be mad at you as such, but I'm mad at you. What a radically different picture we have here. You see, the issue is not that the Son initiates propitiation. 
that the gracious Son of God, Jesus Christ, sees His angry Father and steps in to settle things down and say, Father, I'll die for them so that you won't be angry at them anymore. That is a false view. That is a heretical view. The biblical picture is of God initiating His own propitiation. God Himself initiates the propitiation of His wrath by giving Jesus up for us all. Romans 8 and verse 32 says. Let's look at that in chapter 3 of Romans. Romans chapter 3. As we know this very central text to this idea. Romans 3 and verse 23. All have sinned, we read. All fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The motivation is not Jesus intervening to satisfy God's anger, but is God in His love giving His Son. The death and judgment of His eternal Son whom He loved with an infinite love. Unlike the arbitrary, distempered pagan gods, God is motivated by His perfect holiness. This again is a distinction. The pagan gods just had issues and they got things that got them riled and irritated. That is not the God of Scripture. He satisfies his own anger by giving up what is closest to him, but he is angered by sin because it conflicts with the beauty and the rightness of his moral design. God can be nothing but angered by sin, or he would cease to be God. Let's say that you're looking for an old house. Not many exist around here, but a really old house. And you want to live in this really old house and fix it up, and you find the perfect house. You walk up and the realtor shows you this old house and says, here it is, what do you think? And you're going, this is it if the cost is right. And you walk in the door and the realtor gives the cost and it's way below what you thought it would be and you can't wait. You're trying to keep yourself under control so that they don't change the price on you and you want this house badly. This old rickety house though, behind the kitchen there's this big pantry and you open the door And in the pantry are dozens of rats feeding on rotting meat. Some of you are very controlled because you would go screaming out of the room, I'm sure. But every last one of us here would be repulsed. What an ugly, ugly scene. And you would say, if this house is my house, that vermin has to go. Right? You could not stand living with that one night in that house. Those rats would have to go. Take just that repulsion and multiply it indeed infinitely to consider the repulsion of God against human sin. He is perfectly clean. He is perfectly holy. And every sin is absolutely unacceptable to Him. It makes him sick. It raises his anger. And here it's not just repulsion, 
But the natural response you would have to those rats in that closet and wanting them out of your house, infinitely more is God's anger against sin. It's wrong. It conflicts with His beauty. It's not the way that He created this world. It is hurtful to people. It can only be judged in the house of God's creation. Sin must go. He's a holy God. He hates it. So as Romans 1 and verse 18 says, God's anger is revealed from heaven against all sin. He can't stand it. And we get used to it. In fact, we get comfortable with it. In fact, we like it. We choose to sin all the time. God has never had that idea. Never been moved by the sense of wanting to do what is wrong. Obviously, in Christ, there's a unique temptation of His humanity. But in what God wants, He doesn't understand our comfortableness with sin. So the God of Scripture is so very different than the gods of paganism. He propitiates his own anger. With all of this repulsion, he then moves and takes the very thing that is most valuable and closest to him, the infinite love of his perfect son, who, by the way, has never been tainted by sin. Christ himself is the only one, the only person within this triune being who has never liked, loved, experienced sin. And God takes that one because He's the only one standing who hasn't sinned and doesn't have to pay for His own. And God takes what is infinitely precious and beautiful to Him. And He gives that Son to die because He loves sinners. It is his love for sinners. It is the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of his love that leads him to give this greatest of gifts. Do you think of Jesus as the one who intervenes to turn the Father's anger away from us? Jesus the hero and Father the ogre? Oh, blow those things away. That is a temptation that comes right from the pit. It's God's love that brings us here to this table. It's God's love for us that brought Jesus to the cross. Coming before this table is to contemplate the purest, most heart-wrenching, most costly sacrifice that has ever been made. The sacrifice of the Father laying down the life of His Son for sinners in all of the repulsion of our sin. They're not divided in this. As Packer continues, since all this was planned by the Holy Three in their eternal solidarity of mutual love, and since the Father's central purpose in it all was and is to glorify and exalt the Son as Savior and Head of a new humanity. This is an old guy that's been around a long time. So he says this. This is great. He says... 
smarty pants notions like the divine, like divine child abuse as a comment on the cross are supremely silly and as irreverent and wrong as they could possibly be. And J.I. Packer can call scholars smarty pants whenever he wants. But I'll tell you, he's been way more gracious than perhaps he should be. Because those who see the death of Jesus as divine child abuse are interpreting the death of Christ in precisely the opposite way that the Bible describes it. As the epitome of the love and grace of God. There is a third point, and I will hurry through this. Jesus' death was penal substitution in behalf of sinners. We deepen it a bit further. It is sacrifice. He is giving His life for sin. It is propitiation. He is satisfying the anger of God against sinners. But it is also penal substitution in behalf of sinners. That is, He is taking the place of sinners. Dying as a sacrifice for sin to propitiate God's wrath against sinners, we must also recognize that Jesus died in the place of sinners, bearing the divine penalty against their sins. Now, in a sporting event, there's a substitute. We know what that means. That one person is going to come in and take the place of the other. So that's very simply the idea here. Jesus took the place of sinners, such that those who believe are saved from their sins. Romans 5 and verse 8, While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. For us. Galatians 3 and verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The curse is God's judgment on sin. Jesus took this judgment in our place. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, how could it be any more clear? For our sake, He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake, in our place, paying the penalty of our sin. And let's wash ourselves with the classic text of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Thinking prophetically of the coming Messiah, how can we miss what this says? Verse 4 of Isaiah 53, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Why? Why is He afflicted? Why does He suffer? He was wounded, verse 5, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And here's the clincher. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He lays on Jesus our sin. The Lamb of God bearing upon His head our sins. Dying in our place, suffering the penalty of our sin. Jesus did not die to merely deliver us from Satan. He did not die to merely leave us with an example to emulate. We come to this table today believing that Jesus suffered the just penalty of our sin. The punishment I deserve for my sins against the holy God was suffered by Jesus in my place. In my place, he stood condemned. He suffered God-forsakenness 
so we do not have to. He suffered this in our place. I was helped in thinking through this by the words of Wayne Grudem in his theology. He says it so well to think of the angst of penal substitution as Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone. God the Father, the mighty Creator, the Lord of the universe poured out on Jesus the fury of His wrath. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. And if we would chase that theme a bit, since the time, at least, of the flood, accepting Noah and his family, but before that and after that, in one sense, until all is finished, Jesus bore all that wrath because of the Father's love for us, sacrificing Himself. So as we come to the table this morning, let us see clearly the meaning of Jesus' death. Let let us see it clearly. Sacrificial atonement for sinners. Propitiation of God's wrath against sinners. And penal substitution in behalf of sinners. And if this is true, if this is the true and biblical vision of Christ's death and its meaning, what objects of mercy are we? And what tremendous cost was paid for us to come to this table and to have interest in the Savior's blood? He died and He rose for us. I'll tell you, it's frightening. When you look at the first chapters of the book of Revelation and you look at the last chapters of the book of Revelation and you realize that the worship around the throne of God in eternity will give praise to the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I would be scared to death. In fact, they're not going to get there, I don't think. Those who speak of the Lamb with disdain. Those who say God would never sacrifice His Son. Why then, through eternity, do we praise Him as the Lamb? I trust that you come today knowing of this sacrifice of the Lamb. Knowing that it's this life given for us that satisfies God's wrath. And that Jesus stood in our place to bear the repulsive sins that were ours that He might be the sacrifice for our redemption. May we praise Him together and gather now around this table, again inviting those who have come to saving faith in Christ. This isn't a ritual, it's not a way of gaining your salvation. But those who have come to saving faith in Christ and have stood in the waters of baptism, declaring their faith, identifying with Him, we invite you to come and to commune together around the death of Jesus Christ at this table as he has invited us.